0: Going through the Gospel of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Last week, we studied a passage of Scripture. It was right before what we're reading today, and it was in your Bible, probably called The Sending of the Twelve. And this is where Jesus uh, gives power and authority to his disciples and a couple instructions, and he tells them to go throughout the region of Galilee, which was about a 30 mile circumference. And they're called to preach the gospel of the kingdom and heal the sick and cast out demons. And this was a significant moment as we've been traveling through this gospel because Jesus originally called his disciples that he might send them out. And this was a foreshadowing of what they were going to do entirely because Jesus' full intention is that eventually upon his resurrection and ascension, he's going to give his entire mission and ministry into the hands of these guys. And so as they're going out, we know that in verse 30, it tells us about how they came back and they began to rejoice at all that God had done. And we'll look at that in a few weeks uh, from today when they came back and shared what the Lord was doing. But as we're reading this section of scripture today, what we find is that as the disciples go out and they're ministering in power, it tells us that King Herod, who oversaw the region of Galilee all the way down to Perea, it says that, He was afraid. In fact, he was a paranoid man because he was the one responsible for murdering another man named John the Baptist. And so he thought when he heard the stories of Jesus and the disciples that John the Baptist had risen from the dead and he was scared because John died at his hands. And this passage of scripture that we're reading today gives us the account of John's death. And so Mark finds it important to sort of give us a a picture And to go back in time, maybe six to 12 months to say, this is what happened to John. And before I read the passage, I I just want to make a comment that I think is important, um, especially if you're new to the church. Uh, No pastor is going to choose this passage of scripture to preach from randomly. I mean, I just, there's just not a moment in time where you're going to go, you know what? I want to preach on Mark chapter six, verse 14, the death of John the Baptist. I want to preach that and encourage the church today. It's going to be great. It's like if I went off talking about death for 30 minutes, it'd be rather morbid. But I find that when you go through an entire book of the Bible, what ends up happening is you go through passages of scripture that you may not choose, but you certainly need. And this is one of those passages of scripture. And I don't know how much it is that we focus on this, but aren't you thankful that the Bible has all that we need, even sometimes passages that we don't like to read? Aren't you thankful for that? And sometimes those passages carry the most power in maybe whatever it is that God wants to do. And so I pray that as we open God's word and we read a scripture that maybe it's been a long time, maybe we've never focused on it before. I pray there'd be something here for all of us today. But here's what the Bible says in Mark chapter six and verse 14. It says, and King Herod heard of it. What did he hear about? He heard about the disciples and Jesus ministering powerfully. For Jesus's name had become well known and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah and others were saying he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death, but could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to John. A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests... And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, her mom told her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head, and he went and had him beheaded in prison. He brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body, and they laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord very difficult passage to read, sort of bizarre, bit of a scary story. And again, in verse 14, we understand why Mark felt the need to tell us the account of John's death. He recalls that Herod was afraid. Herod was living in paranoia. Herod was living with a guilty conscience, thinking maybe John had risen from the dead. Herod was a suspicious man. He was a He was a man that was living under such a heavy weight because of what he had done. And although, again, maybe we don't look at this passage very often, one of the things I want to bring out today is that, which is glaring right in front of us, the massive difference between this man named Herod and this man, John the Baptist. It's like light and darkness, the difference between these two people. And what I would like to do is ask you a question and then move towards somewhat of a a revelation that I've been thinking about. And and the question, I know how you're going to answer it, so please understand it's rhetorical. The Saturday night service maybe didn't understand that it was rhetorical, so I'm telling you up front. (laughs) But if I asked you the question, what example out of these two men should you follow? Should you follow a man like Herod Antipas, or should you follow a man like John the Baptist? Now, all of us who are not trying to m- maybe joke back at me, we all say John. Unequivocally, we would say, I would follow the example of John the Baptist. He's a righteous and holy man, and Herod Antipas is absolutely the opposite. So everybody in the room says, I'm going to follow John, because we know that the good examples in our life, they help to shape us. They're the people that help shape our character and our thoughts and our choices, but I need to admit something to you today and it's been looming in my mind all week and that is is that I get grieved very often by how some people choose the wrong examples to look up to and to follow in their life. Now can I tell you even Christians even Christians look up to people as these sort of glaring examples and they're in the the spotlight and they're showcased, and they get the most airtime. And, and although we sort of look at the life of Herod and we go, it's so easy in this summary of the story and his murderous rage to say, I would never look up to somebody like that. But there are principles in Herod Antipas's life outside of maybe his murderous rage that typify a lot of people in our culture and in our time. And many look up to them, even Christians, and we don't tend, tend to look up to people like John the Baptist. We might say in this moment, when I ask you the rhetorical question, oh, Ben, I would follow a guy like John the Baptist. He's a holy and righteous man. But would we? Knowing that he was a man that lived in tension, knowing that he was a man that was misunderstood, knowing that he was a man who gave his life, knowing that he was a man who, who never compromised his message and people constantly looked at him with suspicion and controversy, I mean, he was, he was a man that lived a lonely life. He lived in obscurity. I mean, is that a very attractive Christian life to anybody in this room? But when we sort of look at the options, we're like, I would never be like Herod. I, I, wa- I would rather follow an example like John. See, I wanna bring out not only the summation of, their, of the end of John's life, but I wanna talk about the principles of Herod and I wanna talk about the principles of John and sort of separate them so that we could hopefully glean some of this and say, you know what, I'm not only saying that I would follow a guy like this, but I truly wanna commit myself, whatever it costs and whatever it means, to follow a guy that gave his all for Jesus. And that's exactly what John did, amen? Amen. And so let's first look at this guy named John the Baptist. Who was John the Baptist? The Bible gives us a lot of details about his life. I'm gonna go over a few very quickly. John uh, was... It was told in Luke chapter one and verse seven to his elderly parents that he was going to be born. An angel announced his birth and told his parents who were very late in the game that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. Now, I don't know that anybody in this room had an angel approach them about their child or their parents that you will have a child, you know, in your late stages and that child will be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm I'm not sure. I mean, some of you women had a child, you know, and you probably felt like the Holy Spirit when something was happening in your stomach when you were pregnant, I'm sure of it. I don't think it was the Holy Spirit. I think you had a child that was moving around quite a lot, but this is what John's life, he started this way. An angel announced his birth. Luke 1.35 we know that John was Jesus' natural cousin because their moms were related. Luke chapter 1, verse 80, the Bible records that in John's formative years, that means before his ministry, that he lived in the desert in obscurity. That doesn't even give us details about that. It just says he lived in the desert. I mean, our youngest is 13. I can't imagine. Was John 13 living in the desert? I mean, is it that strange? It doesn't actually tell us. Was it three years? Was it 10 years? I don't know. We just know he had sort of an isolated life. In Isaiah chapter 40 and verse three, and the fulfillment of this prophecy would be in Matthew three, it tells us that John would be the forerunner of the coming Messiah, that John would be a voice of another crying out in the wilderness, make ready the path or the way of the Lord. That was what was prophesied over him. That was his singular goal in life was to to prepare the way of the Lord. And as we read in John chapter three and verse 30, it tells us in an indirect way that John was the last prophet of the old covenant. He was the bookend of all the prophets of God. And it's very important when you read John three and 30 that you understand what John meant when he said it, because sometimes I hear Christians use this verse and they say it about themselves because they're trying to sort of be humble. And I wanna tell you, never say this verse about yourself. And that is this verse. John said, I must decrease that Christ must Yeah, don't ever say that about yourself, okay? First of all, John was the last prophet of the old covenant. And when he said, I must decrease, he meant not only himself as an individual, but what he represented. He represented the old covenant prophets. And he's saying, I and all that I represent must decrease, that Christ and all that he brings must increase. None of us should ever say that. If you need to say, I must humble myself, just say it. But you're not a prophet, amen? And your spouse doesn't call you a prophet when you get home today. And this verse is not something that applies. It's a macro verse to help us understand what John represented and what Jesus represented We also see in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 10 that he preached repentance constantly, consistently, and he baptized maybe 10,000 people in the Jordan River. Can you imagine baptizing 100 people? I mean, the Jordan River is pretty dirty as it is, but man, have you ever seen the waters after baptizing like 20, 30 people? It ain't pretty, I mean, geez, that would wear out your arms just constantly baptizing people. This guy was incredible and he's a worthy example for us to follow. Jesus even said in Matthew eleven eleven, he said, there is none greater that is risen among men beyond at this point, at least than John the Baptist. There is no one greater than John the Baptist. He's a worthy example. But here's a couple attributes I wanna bring up to you today. Number one, John was a godly man. Clearly his life was marked, he was set apart. And ultimately he was killed because he was such a godly man. Look at verse 20. Herodias, this is the wife of Herod, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so for Herod was afraid of John. Why? Because John was a righteous and holy man. This is the tension of godly people, is it not? A godly person is a, uh, someone people hate, someone people love, someone people are maybe fearful of because God has marked their life. When you're around a godly person and everyone knows it, I mean, there is sort of this looming sense of fear and sense of hate and sense of love. John had all of this. There is tension around godliness and godliness in a godless world creates a type of friction that is very normal And can I tell you this today, that if you're going to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you are never going to get out of tension and friction with the world around you. It will not happen and we've got to stop looking for it. We cannot succumb to this idea that everybody's going to like or love us. And it isn't even about us, it's about who we follow. It's about what we carry. It's about what we represent. John was not a person that people didn't like because of who he was, it was what he carried. He carried a message that not everyone wanted to hear. He said things that could be quite offensive because people loved their sin. And that's what John chapter three and verse 17 says. We read verse 16, but John three seventeen says, men do not come to the light because they love darkness and their evil deeds were dark. They loved their sin. And so they did not come to the light of Christ. Well, John was a man that was not afraid to preach the truth. He was a godly man. And our heart and our life before God are just as important as the words that we share. You should just say amen right there. How many of us have seen far too many Christian examples, whether they're churches or celebrity pastors or pastors or parents or anybody that supposedly is representing the person of Christ, and they say all the right words, but they live the opposite with their life. Godliness matters. Being a person that follows the Lord and lives in righteousness, imperfectly as it is, it matters in this world, it does. And godliness, righteousness, holiness, when we live this way, it provides a foundation for the words of our mouth. But if we don't live and we're not seeking to live in a right and righteous way before God, by his grace, fueled by his spirit, then the words that we say will mean nothing to the people in our life. I mean, if you have social media, I'm sure in the last couple months, you've seen tons of headlines about this megachurch called Hillsong. And I have people ask me all the time, what do I think about Hillsong? And what do I think about Bethel? And what do I think about all these megachurches and these celebrity pastors? And here's my answer. I don't. Amen, Joshua. I don't. I don't. I don't have time. I don't know what's going on with them. I see it on social media. I pray for them and I move on. I'm concerned about Northwest Church. I'm concerned about looking in the mirror. I'm not trying to look at other people and talk about how bad they do it. There are a lot of bad examples. Amen. There are a lot of bad examples out there. It's not hard to find one. You don't have to pull up your news app to find a bad example of what Christianity shouldn't be. And so it is a shame though, isn't it? When A Christian ministry, a Christian pastor discredits the words that we preach, that we hold dear, that we believe, that we follow, that we're seeking to reach people with because of a godlessness rather than a godliness. Well, John was a godly man, and he's a great example to us. John was also a fearless man. In Mark chapter one, he was at the Jordan River, and he was preaching repentance. And friends, he was preaching it to everybody, John's message never changed, no matter who he spoke to. When the soldiers came out, he told them they were, they were out there wondering who he was and what was happening, because they had, under the Roman occupation, they were always looking for people that potentially were going to lead an insurrection. So the soldiers are dispatched out there, and John's looking up at them, and he's preaching repentance, and he's like, don't you dare intimidate people under your care. And he looks at the tax collectors because they come out to see what's going on. And he looks at them and he says, don't extort people for their money. And when the Pharisees, the religious leaders come out, he looks at them and says, you brood of vipers, who told you we were out here? (laughs) He never changed his message. That's what it means to be fearless. He was the same in front of everybody. That's powerful. In verse 18 here, it says that John was imprisoned for speaking the truth to Herod concerning his sin. According to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, he told Herod, Herod Antipas, you cannot be married to this woman. This is your brother's wife. And the next thing that happens is he's thrown in prison. A year later, after being in prison for a year, he was murdered by that same man. He was fearless. And this is what it means to be fearless that our disposition and our discussion never changes, even if our environment does. It means we're brave. It means we're we're courageous, And we're not hindered by the consequences of our conviction. Friend, if you're gonna believe what the Bible teaches and if you're gonna share it honestly and openly, you're gonna have friction in your life. You're gonna come into difficulty. At times, you're gonna suffer persecution. You're gonna have pain. And we don't want unnecessary persecution. We don't want unnecessary pain. But if we're not prepared for that which will come against us, we will just fall away. And isn't that what Jesus taught when we looked back at the four soils? He said the message is sown on these different soils and there's only one type of soil that produces fruit. It's the one that receives. It's the one that has that soft heart that responds to the word of God as the word of God actually is, not what we're trying to make it into, not what we're trying to say that it might be, as the word of God is. But I wanna tell you, being fearless does not mean that we're arrogant. It doesn't mean that we're brash or we're mean or we're harsh or we're overwhelming or we lack discretion. But I think it's possible that fear has been influencing or controlling our words and our actions for far too long. I don't always agree with everyone's definition of courage or even the activity that comes out of their life. There are some things that don't take a lot of courage. And people look at it as, as that is something that it is. I actually, you know, the older I get, the longer I live life, the longer I love Jesus, the more I realize what courage actually is. And it isn't always the same of what comes out of people's mouths. Paul had to remind Timothy in his own context what I think we should hear today. In first Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, I want to read this to you in the amplified version of the Bible. He said, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, cowardice, or fear, but he has given us a spirit of power, love, and sound judgment and personal discipline, abilities that result in a calm, well-balanced mind and self-control. Have you ever noticed the opposite of fear in Paul's reference here? Have you ever thought, he says, we have not been given a spirit of fear, but we've been given a spirit of power, love, and sound mind. Have you ever thought of power, love, and sound mind being the opposite of fear? I mean, it's just an interesting thing that he attaches what we should be and how we should speak and what God does give to power, love, and sound mind as sort of the antithesis of fear because you'll find that in courage. It takes courage to love. It takes courage to be at peace and have self-control. And it takes courage to speak up at times when, when we must In our culture, I think it's far too easy to hide behind social media posts, emails, background discussions, where we're not courageous enough to speak to the person that we're speaking about. It does not take courage to talk to a person unrelated to a topic about the person that we ought to talk to. That is not courage. I mean, how weird would it be if I posted something on Facebook and I sat down at the dinner table and I said to my kids, hey, did you see that post that I made today? Pretty awesome, right? What did you guys think about that? That's a waste of time. What I do is we want to spend our time while we're together influencing the people that we love. Here's my opinion about social media. Social media is not a place to influence. We call it like, I'm a social media influencer. I mean, I'll leave it there. (laughs) The stuff that sells uh, is not what I'm interested in. But usually we post on social media what we believe or where we stand. We're not changing anybody's mind. That's not where it happens in my opinion. You know where it happens? You know where you change people's lives? Right here, right here. It's where we spend time with people. It's, it's It's in their presence. And you know, the greatest proof of that is how we raise our children. If we don't spend time with our kids, they don't get our investment then they're gonna get it from wherever that they do. And so as we spend time with each other, we influence one another, we sharpen, we, we challenge, we encourage, we exhort, we help each other. That's why we have to spend time together. That's why the body of Christ has to connect. That's why this is important. It's valuable to do this, but it does not take courage to post in these things and send emails. Friends, we gotta learn how to come back to the place where we talk eyeball to eyeball and we share with one another. That's where courage really happens, in my opinion. And that's where, honestly, this dialogue, this discussion can take place. And sometimes whatever is in our head, whatever is in our heart is exposed and maybe it needs to change, right? And I just think that's such a, a powerful thing. I, I, I would encourage you, don't ever get involved in these social media wars. If I did, I would, never, I would never show, I mean, it would be a full-time job for me. You probably don't know this or don't wanna know this. I get a fair amount of criticism, Yeah. And if you ever, I mean, I haven't mastered it yet, by the way. I just want you to know, sometimes people are like, I don't care what people say. It's like, yeah, you do. The fact that you said that, you had to reiterate it to yourself in front of a bunch of people. (laughs) I'm always a little leery when people are like reaffirming something in front of like the public, like, I'd never struggle with this. We're like, you just gave us a window into your soul. Back. Yeah. All right. Number three, John was a faithful man. John's role was to prepare the way for the Messiah, and that's what he did. He was faithful all the way to the end of his life. He lived in obscurity. He ministered in tension, and he lived the last year in prison, and he was killed in such a way that it's horrible to even bring it up. But he never gave up. He never gave in. Can I tell you today what looks like defeat in a story like this is actually victory in the kingdom? This is a terrible story. A guy lost his life. He lost his head. It's it's a horrible end for a guy like this. But can I tell you that was victory? Why? Because John never gave in. John never gave up. John never changed. He was a man of God and a man of righteousness all the way to the end of his life. And that's an incredible example for you and for me. You know, the way that we die, you can have a good death and you can have a bad death. Did you know that? We can die in a way that brings great difficulty and shame to our lives, or we can die in a way that pleases the Lord. I encourage that. I encourage that we look down the corridor of time and whatever we have left and say, you know what, I wanna die well. I don't just wanna live well, I wanna die well. I wanna do both, and you can, we must. Hebrews chapter 11 is something I was thinking about in response to John the Baptist, verse 35 It's right after this whole section of scripture where it's talking about all the heroes of faith, all the people that gave their lives to God and believed him in their generation. And as they believed him and did great exploits, they saw the manifestation of that. We believe God and we saw the power of God. We prayed and and we acted and we obeyed and God moved in power in our generation and we got to be a part of the transformation of of our times. And this is an awesome chapter of the Bible. But then there's this section at the end and it says this, when we think about John the Baptist, there were others, not those that we celebrate, there were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some of them faced jeers and floggings and beatings and even chains and imprisonment like John. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword like John. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And here's a very powerful verse. The world was not worthy of them because these were the people that were willing to give their lives in a very real and tangible way. The world was not worthy of them. I've been meaning to write a book when I get around to it called The World Was Not Worthy. And I wanna write about people that we don't often celebrate or preach about. I wanna talk about the people that we easily overlook and are not on our radar. We preach a lot in the church about David. David was a troubled man. I mean, I don't even wanna go through his life. I don't easily choose to preach from David's life. I just wanna tell you the honest truth because he did things that confuse me. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart, but there's a lot of troubling issues to his past, the way he treated people. He had a man murdered. You guys remember this story? You know who we don't talk about? We don't talk about the man that he murdered. That man's name was Uriah the Hittite. That man had more integrity in his death than I believe David might have had in his life. David slept with his wife, even though he he was married. And David got this woman pregnant, and she didn't know what to do, so he decided I'm going to cover it up. I'm going to have this man come off of the battlefield. And he tells him, I want you to go and visit your wife because he wanted to sleep with his wife to cover David's sin. And he wouldn't do it because he was a loyal man with integrity. I will not do it. I've made a pledge that I will not do this. My brothers are suffering on the battlefield and I will not go and and have this night because they can't and I wanna identify with them. And David was troubled because he saw that the man actually slept in the doorway of his house and wouldn't even go inside because he was identifying with those that were on the battlefield. And so David was like, I need to get him drunk. So David tries to get him drunk to send him there in case he would do what David was coercing him to do, to cover David's sin. And the man, even though he drank and made that mistake, he he still, guess what? He still did not do what was unrighteous. And so the only thing David was left to do was have him killed. We don't preach about Uriah the Hittite because why? The world was not worthy of a man like that. This is the integrity that we must uphold. I'm not saying there isn't anything worthy in David's life to talk about, but you don't hear a message on Uriah the Hittite. He'll be brought up in my book coming up, The World Was Not Worthy. John was faithful all the way to the end, wasn't he? Don't you wanna be faithful to the end? Amen, without compromising, following Jesus, doing what he said all the way to the end. Well, let's look for a moment at Herod Antipas. Who was this man? And just so you know, there's many Herods in the Bible. And I'm going to do my best to try to clean this up for you if I can. Can you throw up that graphic for me real quick? Uh, You're welcome uh, for this. (laughs) A lot of Herods in the Bible, guys. And you're probably wondering, like, who the heck is who? And I know that's what you're asking. So very quickly, just want to let you know. See, look at this. I didn't have this last night. It's great. It's great. Somebody bought me this. I don't remember who, but whoever bought this for me. Thank you. Thank you. Random person. All right. Herod, Herod the Great is Herod Antipas's father, okay? So this is who we meet in Matthew chapter two. You remember when the Magi come to Herod in Matthew chapter two, it's part of the Christmas uh, story leading up to the birth of Christ. The Magi are traveling to find the Messiah based on the star that they're following. They meet up with Herod, that's Herod the Great. I can't tell you all of his story because I feel like I'd sin just by telling you some of it. But Herod was the one that said to the Magi, hey, make sure that you bring back news to me about this Messiah who's born as a baby so that I too may come and celebrate. And he really intends to kill him. And the Magi never go back because they know what's about to happen. And Herod makes the decision to kill all the children under two years old. What a horrific thing that was. Herod the Great had 14 sons. He killed at least three of them and at least one of his wives. He's a terrible man. One of his sons was Herod Antipas. When Herod the Great died... His kingdom of Israel that he oversaw based on the Roman occupation gave him that authority. It was divided into four sections. One of those sections was Galilee all the way down to Perea, and that's what Herod Antipas would oversee. Now, you need to know the Herods were not Jews. They were Edomites. That's Arabian descent. But supposedly, they were converted to Judaism early on, and so they had sort of this veneer of we ascribe to the principles of Judaism, although they really didn't. Herod Antipas was a puppet king under the Roman occupation, and they charged them to do two specific things. The first was we want to make sure you keep the peace. Don't allow any insurrection. Number two, you need to collect all of our money, guy. That's what you need to do. We want our money, and as long as you keep the peace and keep the people underneath this hand, whether it's oppression or whatever, do whatever you got to do, get our money and we'll be happy. Herod Antipas was a powerful, well-connected, highly educated, wealthy, and let's just say extremely deadly political leader. And I just wanted to uh, share this with you as we're looking at one of the principles that Herod was a sinful man. Now from the text, we can pull out one of the reasons why. Go back to this uh, uh, graphic, please. So what you have here is we have Herod Philip. Herod Philip was married. Herod Philip is married to Herodias and they have a daughter together, Salome. Okay, now Herodias and Salome are in our passage. We've read about them. And so you might wonder, well, Herod Antipas isn't married to her. Well, this is what happened. Herod Antipas was married to another woman. He divorced her. Now, she was the daughter of another well-known leader to a neighboring country. And when he divorced that woman, her dad sent his army over to this region of Galilee, and Rome had to step in so that they didn't actually wipe out Herod Antipas. So he had to go to a great extent to divorce his previous wife and what that actually meant in terms of keeping peace with neighboring uh, countries. But he did it anyways. So Herod Antipas married Herodias. He doesn't care that that's his brother's wife. But if you notice, Herodias is also the daughter of their brother. Can we just, in modern terms, this is a Jerry Springer family. (laughs) If you don't know what that means, you're better off. I really don't. I don't have another way of explaining this. So Herodias is the daughter of the brother, which makes her their niece. So he marries her, shouldn't have. Then he goes and or he goes and takes her from. All right. I'm just tired of explaining that. You get what I'm saying. Take the graphic down. Thank you. Herod was a sinful man. In verse 21 to 28, we read where he's entertaining some high profile guests at a banquet. And he has his daughter, this is his stepdaughter. She's about 16 years old. He has his 16-year-old daughter go and perform a dance for his guests. And the Bible says that she pleased everyone that was there. And that means that she danced in some type of sensual, sexual way. What man lets his daughter do something like that in front of these guests? A sinful man, a sinful man. And when she's done, he's probably drunk or feeling good at this particular time. And in front of his guests, because of his great pride, he says, Salome, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Ask me for whatever you wish. And she goes back to her mom, and her mom is a piece of work as well. <laughs> because her mom says, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. This is the PG-13 rated R version, you know, or part of the passage asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And it says she runs out and says, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod was afraid of refusing this sick request because he didn't know how the dinner guests would see him if he did. His fear was controlling him. And so he grants the request, and they go and have John beheaded. This is a sinful, sinful person. And can I tell you today that although this is an extreme version of sin, I mean, this is extreme, it's grotesque, it's terrible, it's hard to even bring up. I would tell you that all sin blinds us to the truth. Unrepentant, willful sin will blind us to the truth. Friends, it happens and it happens to us. And yes, we can look at Herod Antipas and go, that man is sick, that man is sinful, I am nothing like that person. Maybe in sort of like this mature form, we may not be doing this type of stuff, but what about in seed form? Sin leads to a type of sickness that defiles us from the inside out unless we bring our sin to Jesus and it's cleansed and it's forgiven and we are transformed. Every person in this room needs to be transformed by the grace and the glory and the power of God. And this is why we have to come to Christ because Herod is a a terrible man, a sinful man, but it's a principle that we've got to recognize that he's also a political leader that's functioning under these principles where where he wants people to look at him a certain way. And, And that's my second point. Herod was a fearful man. He was afraid to kill John because he knew he was holy and righteous. He was afraid to resist the request of his daughter because he didn't want his dinner guests to think differently of him. He was afraid at the rumor of Jesus and the disciples, thinking John might have risen from the dead. Herod was a fearful and paranoid man, which stems from the guilt of his sin. He had a guilty conscience. It's not just that he wasn't a good man. It's that he literally had a guilty conscience. Paul told Timothy that there's a point that people get to where their conscience is seared, which means that they cannot do that which is right. Their conscience is seared. They don't even know right from wrong anymore. They are led by their sin. And that guilty conscience was plaguing this man. And can I tell you today that fear will cripple us and our ability to do what is right, fear, where we are projecting a false future and we are living according to a narrative in our head, which is not reality. Fear might come from all kinds of sources, but we cannot give ourselves over to fear. We've got to take our fear and give it to Jesus. Am I saying you should never feel fear? I'm not saying that, everybody will feel fear. Everybody will experience fear. What we do with fear is what's most important. What do you do with fear? You cannot live by it, that's for sure. He was a fearful, fearful man. The third point I wanna make about Herod is Herod was a conflicted man. Maybe we don't think about this. There was a part of him in that guilty conscience that maybe he kept John the Baptist around for a reason. Look at this, verse 19. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. She just didn't care. She was looking for an opportunity to kill this guy because she's sort of the subject of John's truthful speaking. John says to Herod, you can't have this woman. And she hears that and she's sort of the subject of it and she's I want this guy dead. But it says this, he, she could not do this. Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. Now listen to this verse. And when he heard him, he was perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Herod is a man with a great conflict. On the inside, look, he arrests John, but he protects John. He knows he wants to do what He wants to silence his voice. He wants to silence the truth. So he puts him in a pit, but he doesn't kill him. This is a guy who's willing to kill people. He comes from a line of murderers. He himself is a murderer, but he keeps him around. And, and this, this section of scripture sort of gives us this idea that, that maybe every, every now and again he would bring him up out of the pit. that We believe scholars would say that he was living in a dungeon, sort of a pit type dungeon underneath one of Herod's palaces. And he would, pray, he would bring him up out of that place occasionally. And he would have John preach. Now, you know, like I do, what would John preach? He'd say, Herod, you need to repent. He would say the same thing that he's always been saying. You need to repent and you need to turn to God. You need to make this right. You can't be married to this woman. He would say these things and he would talk to him about the kingdom of God. And it says here that he might have hated what he was saying, but he really enjoyed listening to him. He hated what he was saying, but he really enjoyed listening to him. He could listen, but not repent. He had a little bit of remorse, but he didn't have any repentance. Did you know you can feel bad for doing wrong, but really not repent for it? Did you know that you can feel bad for sin, but never have any intention to change? That it is possible to have remorse? You know what Paul said to the Roman church? He said, godly sorrow leads to repentance, not sorrow, not just remorse, godly sorrow leads to repentance. This is what we ask the Lord for in our sin. We all sin. I'm not preaching to you today about some sinless life. Jesus was the sinless one. We have sinned, but what do you do with your sin? Do you repent? Do you turn from that sin? Or do you just feel bad for the sin? See, this is what we see in Herod. He was conflicted He was conflicted, but not converted. He was entertained, but he was not transformed. Does this sound familiar to any of us today? Is it possible in our cultural Christianity today that we could also feel a little bit of conflict, but never convert? Is it possible that we feel like, oh, you know, I really don't wanna do these things and I wanna improve and get a little bit better, but we never actually do what we need to do in surrendering and coming to Jesus and humbling ourselves? Is it possible today that, that this is something widespread. And I think there's a warning for us. Herod liked John, but he loved Herodias. Herod liked John a little bit, but he loved Herodias. He loved his sin. Herodias is not sin personified, but their marriage, their union certainly was. the question that we have today is who will we be in our world today? That's the question. It's a question that we have to answer. I told you in the beginning, and I want to remind you as we close, I am amazed constantly. This is an honest confession. It's not a sermon. This is an honest confession. I am constantly amazed by who people choose to be their examples, who people choose to look up to. I think it's easy to say that, man, I would never follow Herod's example, but I would follow John. Ben, thank you for the question. It's a it's provocative one. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting one. But if you look at some of the people that we prop up in our culture and even yes, even us as Christians, we tend to follow and defend and like and, and enjoy listening to. And they exhibit the similar qualities of Herod, even, not, even if not the murderous rage part, a lot of the other things. Let's talk about his sexuality the words that he shared, the fear that he succumbed to, the love of riches that he exhibited, the oppressing of truth and righteousness, silencing the prophetic voice, silencing the truth, which by the way, cannot be done. Are there people in our world today that we look up to that maybe we shouldn't? I could prove this. I could name names. I could get specific. I could make it really uncomfortable. Pastor Ben, I don't know if you should do that. Matt's looking at me. Ben, don't do that today. People got a whole day. They got a whole day left, Pastor Ben. I'm not here to rail on anybody or anything, but I'm just saying like, when we could go after like actors and politicians and music artists and media moguls, what about corporate giants? Oh, they do so much good in the world, don't they? They're giving so many billions of dollars away for the betterment of people, aren't they? Yeah, that's not anything to do with a tax write-off or to maybe make their dinner guests feel like what they're doing is good and right. But behind it all, the exploitation, the pain and the suffering that they inflict on everybody. Else. I Listen, when the, when the sheet gets pulled up, I wonder where everybody's really gonna stand, don't you? Friend, we cannot be fooled today. The media is painting a picture that the John the Baptist types are crazy. And they're painting another picture that the Herod types, those are pretty good people. That's exactly what is happening in our culture today. And don't fall for it, Christian. Don't you dare fall for it. And it is not our, judge, our job to go around. I'm not talking about just going around and judging everybody, but I see these people get exalted and it's shameful. I constantly go, God, why are we not attracted to the sacrificial way, the Jesus way, the loving way, the humble way? Why are we not attracted to a life? Yet, yes, I might lose my life in this world, but I will gain it in that which is to come. This is why Jesus said something so radical to us and he meant every word of it, didn't he? He said, anyone who wishes or desires to come after me must first, not last, but must first deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. If you don't make that decision first somewhere along the way, You're going to recognize that you don't have to keep following Jesus when it doesn't meet our expectations, our desires for our future, the things that we want to do in this life. And the distractions are coming at us all the time trying to take away our affection and our allegiance and and get us connected to things that are anti-Christ, that are opposite of Jesus Getting us to look to the rich and to the famous and to the powerful instead of the locust eating, truth telling, often obscure, persecuted, sacrificial, lowly examples of those that even in their death were victorious according to the kingdom of God. I don't know if you see it or if I did a good job painting the picture today. I certainly tried. But John's life doesn't look very attractive to most of us. Isn't that true? But wow, our culture today is making Herod's life look a whole lot more attractive. And I would tell you that you and I, we need to go on long fasts of our media. (laughs) We need to go on some long fasts and stop believing what we're being fed and start getting absorbed in this book. You say, Ben, how do you do what you're saying? Man, you're going after it. And I am in my own life. I'm preaching a sermon, but I got to live it too. Isn't that right? How do you go after this life that you're talking about? You get absorbed in this book in the person of Jesus. And one of the first things that we've got to do is stop acting like we already are because when we do that, there's really nowhere else for us to go. Oh, Pastor Ben, I know the word. Pastor Ben, I know Jesus. I know you do. I'm not saying we don't, but we've got to get absorbed in this. If I wasn't the pastor of this church, I'd still somewhere sit close to the front row. I'd lift my hands. I'd praise God. You know why I love singing in church? You know, you know why I love raising my hands and being a little bit charismatic Pentecostal? You know? you know why I love that? Because when I read the Bible and I look at when they sang songs to God, you see it on the other end of a deliverance. Exodus chapter 15, God delivers them through this Red Sea, and they see the sea come up, and the enemies are behind them, and God washes out their enemies, and they walk through on dry ground, and they get to the other side. And the next thing you see is Moses's song. You see the same thing in 1 Samuel 22. We see David was being pursued. Saul and others want to take his life, and he gets delivered by God. And what does he do? He writes a song You see the same thing in Acts chapter 16. You see Paul and Silas, and they're imprisoned for the gospel. They were preaching the good news, and as a result of it, they got sent to jail. And they could be like, oh, man, this is terrible. I thought that if I was going to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, my wallet was going to be fat, all my relationships are going to be great, and I would never have sickness or disease. I thought that was what was going to happen, and they're sitting in the prison in shackles. And you know what it says that they do? They wasted no time. They started to sing praises to God. And you know what God did? The prison doors opened. The place where they were shook. You better smile. This happened, friend. This happened. This is better than your Netflix Rolodex, all right? It says the prison doors opened. The shackles come off them. And you know what it says? They didn't even budge. They weren't even asking God to get them out of the prison. They were just singing praise to God. Friend, if you don't know why you sing in church, if you don't know why you raise your hand, be reminded it's on the other end of a deliverance that God's done in your life. We don't lift our hands for each other. We praise the name of Jesus because of what he's done. We serve the Lord because of who he is. We follow Jesus because he's the only worthy example for us to give our life he's the one that we look to. There'll be a lot of Herod Antipas in our, in our day, in our world. Don't follow them. Don't give them your affection. Don't follow them. I'm not even saying judge them. I'm just saying follow Jesus. Get absorbed in his way. Get absorbed in his word. If that hasn't happened, if you're not absorbed in the word of God and the person of Jesus, do it. No one else deserves your life. No one. No one. You say, well, Ben, that's awesome. I know. So why don't we close with prayer with a fresh surrender today? You willing to do that with me? will not you stand? I'm not asking for every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm asking for every eye open and every head looking forward. How about we all surrender? How about we call it a collective surrender to Jesus today? And uh, if you are here and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, if I ask you, are you forgiven of your sin Do you know him? Do you walk with him? If you can't answer that with great confidence, I wanna tell you the best decision that you can make is give your whole life to Jesus. That's what life is about. We don't want Jesus in our life. We want Jesus as our life. And so today, if you don't know him, come forward after the service. Our pastors will be here. We wanna pray with you. We wanna talk to you. We wanna help you find Jesus and follow him faithfully with all of your life. But let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, your glorious word that leads us into better things, that shows us the righteousness of Christ. Father, we thank you that you've saved us. Thank you that you've set us free. Thank you that you've given us an example, words to follow, truth that sets us free. And today we surrender to you and we say openly, publicly, with all of our hearts that you are the worthy example for us to follow. You're the one that we look to. You're the one that we look up to. You're the one that is worth everything. And so we thank you today. Father, I pray where there might be deception and where we're looking to another for any reason whatsoever, I pray that we would just discard that and we would be absorbed in your book, we would know your way and we would follow it faithfully. Father, bless your church. Thank you for your people, the people of God. Help us to go out of this place and represent you well. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Jesus' mighty name, everyone said, Amen, amen. 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 (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.